Hi, we're Josh and Arielle Wamsley, owners of Green Valley Tree LLC, based in North Wyndham. We're proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week and to serve the communities of Wyndham and New London counties with our tree removal and plant health care services. Visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com for a full list of our services or give us a call on 860-234-4041. We look forward to hearing from you. It's almost as large as Central Park in New York City. We're talking about the Connecticut College Arboretum in New London. We take a walk through the Arboretum and find out more with its very first female director, Maggie Redfern. Plus, we take a look at other stories making the headlines from around the region. This is Connecticut East This Week. Hello, I'm Brian Scott-Smith. Connecticut is blessed with many great outdoor spaces for such a small state, and one of them is Connecticut College's Arboretum, tucked away in the southeast corner. It's a place that is open to the public, but is also used by the college for teaching, research and conservation. And for the very first time in its history, it has a female director in charge of it. I caught up with Maggie Redfern, the new director, and took a walk with her through a small section of the Arboretum to find out more about her role and the Arboretum itself. Maggie, welcome to the podcast and thank you for welcoming us to this beautiful Arboretum, which is part of the Connecticut College campus. Thank you so much for joining me on a walk today. It's a pleasure to have you here. We're just going to paint a little bit of a picture for our listeners because sadly they can't be with us as we walk on this lovely like end towards the end of October day. We are looking up towards one of the entrances. I believe it's called the Laurel Walk. Tell us a little bit about that. That's correct. Looking back to the William Street entrance from the Connecticut College college campus. The Laurel Walk is one of the original features of the Arboretum, which was established in 1931. As the name implies, is lined with mountain laurel, which is the state flower of Connecticut. So we're looking back up to the entrance now, up the grassy Laurel Walk. And then if we turn around and we look behind us, we see the Arboretum Pond, which is surrounded by fall color right now. Really a spectacular day to be out in the Arboretum. You sort of like just gave away the age of the Arboretum, 1931, so it's 92 years old this year. Tell us a little bit about it. The Arboretum was established 20 years after Connecticut College was established. Connecticut College was on several old farm properties, including the Arboretum. So this actually has been part of Connecticut College since 1911. And out beyond where we are today is a section of land that was given to the college with the stipulation that it be open to the public. And so So in 1931, as the college was thinking about creating an arboretum, it made a lot of sense to create a public park here on this land. We have about 30 acres that were designated as plant collections for plants that are native to Connecticut. So the women of Connecticut College could just walk across the street and discover all of the trees and shrubs native to the state. Now you said about 30 acres, just to give a sense again for everybody. The Arboretum 
Arboretum really encompasses the whole of the campus, doesn't it? And that's a staggering figure. How big is that? That's correct. So the Arboretum is 750 acres, almost as big as Central Park in New York City, but very different in character. It includes the 125 acres of campus up on top of the hill where the stone buildings and all of our classes and students live. We also have several hundred acres of natural areas, as well as managed lands uh, that surround the campus. And all of this land, or most of this land, was acquired over the years as farmlands and surrounding properties became available. So a lot of forethought that went into that and thinking about land conservation and being able to surround the college with natural green space. Let's talk a little bit about yourself. You are officially the first female director of the Arboretum, but we should make it clear many eminent women in the past were also part and parcel of how the Arboretum has turned out today. That's definitely true. So one of the other plant collections that I didn't mention is the Caroline Black Garden. And that garden was named in memory of the first botany professor here at Connecticut College who passed away unexpectedly in 1930. She was hired to be a botany professor in 1918 and established the first um, small native plant garden that the Arboretum or that the college had on the opposite side of campus over off of Route 32 where the garden is that's named in her memory today. And then yes, over the years we've had many influential botany professors that have helped with our plant collections and managing the Caroline Black Garden and teaching students all about the plants and collections we have within this landscape. Where did this love for plants and the environment come from? Because it clearly is a passion with you? I think always in the back of my mind, I have loved plants and trees. I actually grew up in California and I fondly remember uh, visiting the redwoods as a child and also just the beautiful flowers that were growing in my parents' garden and in, in our neighborhood. In college, though, I studied architecture and my first real job out of college was working at a historic property up in Newbury, Massachusetts that was a colonial farm surrounded by this just beautiful landscape that was constantly changing. The historic house, they were injecting epoxy in and trying to preserve the house as it was in the past. But the landscape, that's growing and changing constantly. There's no putting a stop to the landscape. We don't want to put a stop to the landscape. And so I started to really understand this new concept of cultural landscapes and how so much of our land has been changed by humans, influenced by humans, and that we really have a lot of influence on what our landscape looks like. So much of the landscape is is managed by humans or altered by humans in some way. So just starting to think about what is a character-defining aspect of a landscape and how do we preserve that? Not necessarily a tree or a plant in particular, but the overall feel of a place. You've got a great team of people. We're going to talk about those in just a moment. There are many parts which are, if I use this term, it may be incorrect, but managed. They are looked after, but there are parts which are just left alone. Talk to us about the staff and the challenges of obviously this like this duality of making sure that parts of it obviously are accessible, but then I suppose in a way standing back and but also just making sure that the natural part stays okay. Sure. So we usually use the word cultivated as opposed to managed. So the landscape is cultivated and that we're removing invasive plants and we are intentionally planting the plants that we see around us. Even though they're native to Connecticut, we have the plants designed 
in a layout that actually goes toward a more scientific approach and an approach for learning about plants. So members of the magnolia family are near each other. Members of the rose family are near each other. The dogwoods are near each other. There are definitely exceptions to that because plants have many different requirements, whether it's sun or shade, wet or dry soil. So that definitely influences where the plants get planted. So this cultivated area that is the native plant collection most people refer to as the Arboretum and just think of this 30-acre area as the Arboretum. We have a staff of three horticulturists that manage this landscape. They also manage all of our natural areas, but those areas, as the word natural sounds, are left to be more showing natural processes, what might happen in woodland area, for example. We also have the huge benefit of having Connecticut College students work with us during the academic year and a few interns work with us during the summertime. And we are able to accomplish far more than just three people by having um, all of these students work with us as well. It's a really great hands-on teaching and learning experience for the students. Maggie, we are standing under a couple of pretty tall trees. Tell me about them. These are tulip trees, Lyria dendron tulipifera. These are, in fact, some of the tallest trees in the Arboretum and some of the oldest planted trees in our collection. I think these date from about 1936, if I, if I remember correctly. Tulip trees are native to Connecticut and grow to over 100 feet tall. If you look at these really tall, straight trunks, very broad in diameter, you might start thinking, what were these trees used for? What could these possibly be used if we were to fell one of these trees? And they were used by Native Americans to make dugout canoes. Tall, straight trunk without any side limbs made for a really good canoe. And as the name dugout sounds, they weren't quite dugout. It was usually fire that was burned in the inside, a slow burning fire to actually hollow out the center of the trunk of the tree to make a boat. Really beautiful and impressive size to stand next to these trees. We're also stood on one of the many, many trails here. So we were talking obviously about the Laurel Walk, but of course, talk to us about, you know, the other, so like perhaps less formal, I suppose you could put it pathways. Sure. Well, as I mentioned before, the grounds are laid out with plant collections. So we are in the area where many of the members of the Magnolia family are. The tulip tree, in fact, are members of the Magnolia family. We see a couple of Magnolia trees uh, right across the end of this path from us. But the path is a wood-chipped path with leaves that have fallen on and kind of gently curving off into the distance. And as we look down there, you can see the gentle decline down. And this area passes through a red maple swamp, which is one of the more common wetland types in Connecticut. But it allows us to grow some of these plants that appreciate having their feet wet. So we have some of the native azalea species in here. We have spice bush. We have winterberry. And we also have the sweet bay magnolia, which is also known as the swamp magnolia, just because this is the perfect habitat for all of these plants. As you said at the top of the interview, it's native plants to Connecticut. So I guess if anybody was thinking, hey, I want to put some things in my garden, this is a good place to come and look at things because you know they're going to grow. Because that's always the fear is that you buy these things and then they don't grow. I mean, all of these, I'm guessing a lot of them are still available, you know, at nurseries and things, are they? That's true. Some of them are harder to find. I should also mention that over the past 90 years or so, we have expanded our definition of native. So we aren't strictly native to Connecticut. We are growing plants from the whole eastern deciduous forest. So plants that are native from Maine all the way down to Florida and that are hardy here in Connecticut. So all of these plants are growing year-round outdoors. You know, we don't dig up or move any of these plants inside 
outside so they can survive our Connecticut climate. And as we are noticing our winters getting slightly warmer, we're finding we're able to grow more plants here that have more of a southern origin that are just doing well and and doing better than they were in years past. One plant that we've recently introduced to the collection here that's really thriving is the Franklin tree. And that is a beautiful plant that's native to the southeast and in fact is a plant that's extinct in the wild and only known through cultivation. And that's a plant, big beautiful leaves, it almost looks tropical. And this time of year it's really special as those leaves start to change color and it's in flower and it has a large white flower with many yellow stamens in the center. Really spectacular to see something so showy and tropical this time of year. So Maggie, we are stood in another excellent area of the Arboretum. It is your conifer garden. That's correct. We are surrounded by the cone-bearing plants, the conifers. Tell us a little bit about them. And the other thing is as well, why native plants? What's the, other than the fact that it's nice to have them and, you know, we know that they grow here, what's the importance of those? So many big questions here. So native plants, very short answer, have many benefits. And one of probably the most important is how they support the ecosystem. They support pollinators. They support Lepidoptera. They support wildlife. If we don't have native plants growing in our landscape, we aren't able to support the bees. And if we don't have any bees, we don't have any pollination for the food that we eat that grows on the farms near us. So native plants are really important. And this is something that over the years, as people have experimented with plants and growing plants, there's been a lot of interest in growing the exotic plants that come from far away. Most of those plants aren't supporting our native pollinators. And there's no other way to support them but to grow native plants. You also asked about where we're standing now. So we're standing in the middle of the conifer collection. Usually people think of conifers as evergreen and we are surrounded by a lot of green. But if you notice, we're also surrounded by some really beautiful other fall colors. We have our bald cypress tree over here, which is that beautiful rust colored conifer. Interestingly, there are a couple of deciduous conifers. So that is one that loses its needles in the winter time and will you know, grow back new needles in the fall. We also have the tupelo or black gum or pepperidge tree, so many common names for the Nyssa sylvatica that grows over at the edge of the conifer collection. You might have noticed as we walked by that it's loaded with fruit and that fruit, these dark purpley colored droops are loved by birds. And if you think about birds in Connecticut right now, kind of that stereotype image, they're bulking up ready to head south for the winter. And these native fruits are super important important for bird migration. These fruits are very high in lipids that provide a lot of energy and nutrition for birds as they're migrating. Many of the exotic plants, such as honeysuckle, don't provide the nutrition that these native fruits do for birds to migrate. So these are really critical for for their survival. The other thing I want to ask you, as we're recording this interview, several people have gone by because, of course, it is open to the public. Do you get sort of like, you know, reaction or sort of like all feedback from members of the public? Because it's a good place to come and walk your dog and do all sorts of things. What do they sort of like think or say to you about the Arboretum? Sure, I think especially since COVID, people love having this as a resource within the community. Arboretum's open every day of the year, sunrise to sunset, and there's no charge. Even though we are part of Connecticut College, we are fully open to the public. People come, as you said, to walk their dogs, take walks in nature. We also have lots of people that come to listen to and look at the birds. It's kind of interesting. I'm hoping this microphone 
microphone is picking up some of the sounds of the many birds that are around us today. Actually, when the Arboretum was established, the natural area just beyond the plant collection on the maps, that area was designated as a bird sanctuary. And that's the natural area. So they were thinking about how are the natural areas of the Arboretum going to be used, maybe for us as humans to enjoy walking through, but more importantly, for the birds that live here and a place to go observe and and look at birds. Um, We have a couple different programs that we sponsor with the local Connecticut Audubon Society. Owl walks, walks out on the marshes just to see all the different types of birds that come to the Arboretum and make use of all of these plants. I think the fascinating thing as well about the Arboretum is that it is surrounded by so much development, you know, housing and whatever. So to be able to find this oasis smack bang in the middle of all of this being looked after will obviously be here for many, many years to come. I mean, it is a precious commodity to have, isn't it? Oh, definitely. I think one of the places that people value the most is our Mamacook Island. Mamacook Island is a 40-acre wooded island in the Thames River, and you can get to it by crossing over a very sensitive uh, salt marsh. Uh, The salt marsh is a place that you want to check the tides before you decide to walk across, because when the tides are high, the marsh is wet. So if you check, come over on the low tides, you can cross over a a narrow path and get over to the wooded area of Mamacoke. And that is one of our designated it's actually our first designated natural area where we are just letting natural processes take place. We do keep the trails clear. There's a loop trail that goes around the island. So if a tree was to fall across the trail, one of our crew members would go over there and remove that tree or cut the tree so that people can continue to walk through. That's about the limit of our involvement in the natural areas of the Arboretum. Maggie, we've come to a little bit of an intersection. Tell us where we are. We are over on the west side of the Arboretum Pond in the Bullswood Natural Area. So as we look around here, we see a landscape that's a bit different from the cultivated section of the native plant collection. Over here, the plants have all just grown on their own. These are not planted by the Arboretum staff. These plants have grown in mostly since the 1911 when Connecticut College was established, but definitely since the 1930s when the Arboretum was established. This land was all former farmland. So what we're seeing here is just the natural progression and succession of farmland converting into woods. As we look around at the trees that are growing around us, we see that mountain laurel that we saw back at the Laurel Walk, but it looks a little different here because it's grown in the understory and we see the twisting and curving bark of the trunks behind us. Mountain laurel is an evergreen plant, so that's kind of dominates the shrub layer here. And then as we look up, we see the red maples and the oaks and the hickory and even a few of those pepperidge trees that we saw back in the conifer collection. The trails go off in three different directions from here. One takes us up to a forest loop where the old quarry was and where the old hemlock trees once stood. The path behind us takes us over to the Arboretum's bog. We have a natural bog in the Bullswood area. And then the path ahead is what I think we'll be following next and taking us over to the outdoor theater. The outdoor theater theater was one of the original features of the Arboretum, and this is actually where graduation took place for Connecticut College from the 1930s well into the 1960s. And the class sizes got to be a little bit too big, and graduation moved up to the main part of campus. The outdoor theater today is used for all sorts of other public events. We have our Music in the Meadow concert here. Flock Theater holds Shakespeare in the Arboretum here in the summertime. Students have dance performances.
performances, theater performances, student-run concert called Arbo Fest, where the local bands and musicians from campus come over and, and play music on a beautiful fall Saturday. Um, one thing we do is full moonwalks. We usually do those once a semester to be able to come in the Arboretum and, and watch the moon rise over the trees and see the moon reflecting on the Arboretum pond. Research is carried out. Talk to us obviously about the research because, you know, there are practical applications to this as well as the beautiful parts to it as well. Sure. Well, as we were walking there through the Bullswood Natural Area, I did uh, feel a bit remiss for not mentioning that this is a site of long-term research. Established in 1952 were vegetation surveys that have been conducted every 10 years since where botany professor and Connecticut college students come out and inventory the vegetation along four transects through the natural area. They are then able to monitor the changes in the landscape. Over the years, we've had losses in our tree canopy from the hemlocks that mostly succumb to hemlock woolly adelgid, and more recently we've lost many ash trees in the woods, and now we're seeing the demise of our beech trees. And these are all losses as a result of invasive insects, exotic pests that have come in, and are not just here at the Arboretum, but all over Connecticut. So these students in the Vegetation Survey are able to see how the landscape and the woods are changing. In conjunction with that, we have some biology students who work with an ornithologist to document the breeding birds in the Bullswood section of the Arboretum. Folks come out and listen to the sounds of the male bird calls and what they are able to do is identify the breeding territory of the birds in the Arboretum. So these surveys that take place in conjunction in the same landscape are in fact one of the longest such research projects in all of North America where the vegetation and the bird populations are being studied together. Well, Maggie Redfern, the new director of the Connecticut College Arboretum, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for taking time out of your day to talk us and walk us around the Arboretum. I know we have literally just scratched the surface of this amazing place. And as we say, long may it continue. We're very, very fortunate that Connecticut College, yourself and your team are here to look after it. Thanks for joining us on Connecticut East this week. Thank you so much. And thank you for the excuse to come outside and enjoy the Arboretum on such a beautiful day. And you can visit the Connecticut College Arboretum. It's open every day from sunrise to sunset or visit their website to find out more about activities and events happening there at con college.edu forward slash the dash arboretum it's hurricane season and your trees can be damaged by high winds green valley tree has you covered with our emergency tree service outside of our regular business hours we offer emergency tree service by bucket crane and climbing for residential commercial and even municipalities across eastern connecticut from full tree removals uprooted or broken trees to broken hung up or fractured tree limbs call our emergency hotline on 860-966-5710 or visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com You know you don't have to wear your PT gear anymore, right? It's comfortable. So how's civilian life treating you? It's fine. When I got out, I didn't want to admit that there was anything wrong because I felt like a failure. And then I realized, like, there's nothing to be ashamed of. So I started talking to someone. Maybe you are fine. But if you're not, it's okay. Thank you. If you or a veteran you know needs support, don't wait. Reach out. Find resources at va.gov reach. 
Time now for a look at other stories making the headlines this week. As wind turbines ship out from State Pier in New London for New York's South Fork Wind Offshore Wind Farm, Danish energy company Orsted, who are spearheading offshore wind projects in the US, announced they have cancelled both Ocean Wind 1 and 2 offshore wind farms set for the state of New Jersey because of rising costs associated with them. However, New York State, Connecticut and Rhode Island will see their offshore wind projects completed. The company also made a final investment decision to go ahead with their 704 megawatt Revolution Wind project, a joint venture with power company Eversource, which will comprise of around 65 offshore wind turbines that will power a combined 700,000 homes in Rhode Island and Connecticut by 2025. Those wind turbines will also be constructed at State Pier in New London, which has been redeveloped at a cost of over $300 million to become a hub for the new offshore wind industry. The city of New London has become the home of Connecticut's latest Innovation Center, an incubator for new startup businesses in the southeastern part of the state. The center is also the new home of the Chamber of Commerce of Eastern Connecticut, who are behind the Innovation Center. Mike Passero is the mayor of New London and said at the center's ribbon-cutting event that like so many things, they eventually come full circle. Businesses and people moved out to the suburbs in the 70s and the 60s. Now everything comes full circle and we have the businesses and the residents moving back and this is becoming a vibrant urban center for this great metropolitan region. We all have to work together. And my partners, you know, like Rob Brule in Waterford and Monfil and all the towns around us, they understand that New London has to be vibrant for southeastern Connecticut to be vibrant. Tony Sheridan is the president of the Chamber of Commerce of Eastern Connecticut and said it's been a long, hard and expensive process to bring the Innovation Center to the city. But we started with this building and we ended up with this building because it is the right building. As you can see, it's a gateway, it's a billboard, it's the center of town, it's in an enterprise and opportunity zone. Everything is right about this building. The Chamber obtained a $1.3 million investment from the state and raised a further $1.5 million from local businesses and grants. The building is located on Eugene O'Neill Drive in the city of New London and will provide startup companies with desk space as well as subsidized rent for a dedicated office. A Yale University report is looking at the effectiveness of green resilience hubs in Connecticut communities. Edwin J. Vieira from the Connecticut News Service reports. These hubs are made up of renewable energy energy and storage installed in a place bringing a community together. If a natural disaster strikes, this could isolate the hub to provide necessary power if the main electrical grid is strained or out of service. Report co-author Max Wasser says during a harsh winter storm, resilience hubs could keep people warm. If there's a blackout in the winter, like let's say, you know, there's a cold snap and power supply can't keep up with demand and there are blackouts, this system, you know, could power heating services in some of these community centers. So, you know, people might be sharing space and sleeping in one room, but they'll be warm and they'll be out of the cold. He adds this could also be beneficial in Connecticut's summers, which are only getting hotter. A primary challenge to getting these going is financing. Wasser notes that green banks would be the best way to get these resilience hubs funded, although it also depends on which communities want them built. I'm Edwin J. Vieira. And the Connecticut Department of Veterans Affairs is reaching out to residents across the state to help make sure every fallen veteran gets a wreath this year on their headstone during the 
holiday season. The wreaths are part of a nationwide effort called Wreaths Across America, and Connecticut needs over 14,000 of them. John Carragher is the manager of the Office of Advocacy and Assistance at the Department of Veterans Affairs and says the giving and laying of a wreath by a member of the community is important. Understand what they did and why they did it, and hopefully instill a little bit of a spirit of patriotism and community service to that person, but really establish a connection and a personal connection with that individual veteran that we're laying that wreath on because it's more than just decoration. It looks nice and takes great pictures, but the meaning behind it is what we want to make sure that we get across. Sherry Vogt is a Connecticut Veterans Affairs Board of Trustee member and says last year they were short about 1,000 wreaths in the state and despite help from many organizations, they want to make sure every fallen veteran is honored this year. We are so fortunate to have the Daughters of the American Revolution. We have American Legion Post 20. Middletown Fire Department was reporting they'd sold quite a few. And so although our goal is 13,000 wreaths for one for every marker in our veteran cemetery here in Connecticut. Wreaths must be purchased by November 28th to make sure they are available for the laying ceremony in the state on December 16th, which is also open to the public. Wreaths can be purchased online at wreathsacrossamerica.org forward slash CT0164. That's all from us for this edition. Do send us your questions and story ideas to the show via our website at Connecticut-East.com or Facebook or Twitter at Connecticut East and on Instagram at Connecticut East This Week. And you can listen to the show again on our social platforms on demand and by asking your smart speaker to play Connecticut East This Week podcast. And please like, follow and share on your social media too. I'm Brian Scott Smith. Thank you for listening.